prosperity has become its prevailing concern and anything deemed by Beijing as too profitable is now being torpedoed. What do you make of that? Look, I, uh, I, like, I like and respect Kathy Wood. I follow her myself at times. Um, and I think the analysis is correct. But if Kathy Wood thinks that she can sort of game the market by just focusing on those issues that are sort of cr- trying to curry Beijing's support, I think that's somewhat of a fool's errand. You know, everyone's trying to do that. Uh, Tencent is trying to curry Beijing's support. Mm. Um, even Kathy Wood can't predict which sector is going to be in tomorrow's crosshairs. So if she thinks she can, more power to her, but, but I'm skeptical. Okay, Brock, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. That's Brock Silvers, Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a look at, first of all, stock markets uh, in Asia. In Australia, they're looking positive, up about a quarter of a percent. Not so in Japan, though. Now they've turned negative. The Nikkei 225 is off about a third of a percent. Uh, looks like the decline is going to continue here in Hong Kong. Futures markets indicating the Hang Seng off 1% at the open. And the Cosby in South Korea is down about 0.1%. Brent crude oil uh, is up this morning at $73.46 a barrel. But gold is slipping a little at $1,000. $1,786 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Jim Gordon and Mike Rouse in just a moment. The weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. going to be very hot with isolated thunderstorms during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 33 degrees. There is a very hot weather warning in force and it will be hot with sunny intervals and a few showers tomorrow. It's 30 degrees right now, 79% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. Financial Secretary Paul Chan says the SAR is striving to lift border restrictions with the mainland to boost the economy. Mr Chan says he's optimistic that economic growth can meet the government's targets if the epidemic remains under control. Aaron Tam reports. Mr Chan said the SAR's economic rebound has been uneven, with catering and retail doing well, but tourism and aviation under pressure. The finance chief added that he hopes local consumption could continue to drive the recovery and stabilize the job market. Last month, the administration raised annual growth targets to between 5.5 and 6.5 percent. Mr. Chan also said that the SAR is focusing its efforts on lifting border restrictions with the mainland, saying tourists would bring the biggest support to the economy. The elections for Macau's legislature were held yesterday after the SAR's Electoral Affairs Commission disqualified 21 opposition candidates on July the 9th, after it proved they did not uphold Macau's basic law. Voter turnout nosedived by about 15% from the previous election, with only 137,281 casting their votes to return 14 seats out of 33 total seats in the Legislative Assembly. Twelve of the remaining 19 seats are returned through indirect elections within professional sectors, and Macau's chief executive will appoint the remaining seats. Overseas, a zoo in the United States is taking measures to protect animals from the coronavirus. 13 of the 20 gorillas at Zoo Atlanta in Georgia tested positive. Here's the BBC's Harry Bly. The zoo, which has its own gorilla care team, says keepers observed coughing and changes in appetite within the troop of western lowland gorillas. After tests came back positive, vets and doctors began treating the great apes, most at risk of developing complications, with artificially made antibodies, 
Now all of the gorillas are being regularly tested, regardless of symptoms, and the zoo has doses of a vaccine developed especially for animals, which will be given to some of its other residents, including orangutans, lions, tigers and leopards, as a precaution. The FBI has released on the orders of President Biden a previously classified document on alleged links between the government of Saudi Arabia and the September 11th attackers. The document offers no evidence of Saudi official support. The BBC's Peter Bowes explains. It doesn't implicate uh, Saudi officials or the Saudi government, and, and, and that is significant. But it does provide some more details about the alleged assistance that a, a Saudi national in the United States gave to two of the attackers. Now, remember, these attackers entered the United States in the year 2000 as students, and there's always been considerable amount of speculation that they must have had assistance, uh, likely from Saudis already in the country, to be able to get into the US and to plan their plot, their 9-11 attack. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. So today we're talking about um, the COVID-19 vaccination rate and later on local tourism. Bookings for inoculation against COVID-19 were declining last week with Chief Executive Carrie Lam saying uh, the number of people taking the jabs had dropped to a worrying level. She said uh, we're still striving to maintain zero local infections with the aim of having the borders with the mainland reopened. And so we cannot adopt the strategy of coexisting with the virus, an approach which is becoming more prevalent elsewhere. It's been announced that uh, 21 of the 26 community vaccination centres will stay open through December, while more outreach teams will be sent out to encourage the elderly to take the jab. Meanwhile, schools are also encouraging students and teachers to be vaccinated in order to reach the 70% threshold needed to resume full-day classes. What should we do to boost the vaccination rate? With US President Joe Biden ordering measures to require workers at big companies to be vaccinated or face weekly testing, can we do the same here? After 9.15, we're discussing local tourism with West Kowloon, home to more than 50 attractions being added to the Hong Kong Neighbourhoods programme. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Well, joining us uh, this morning on the line, we have uh, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, who's a visiting professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and also another professor, uh, Wallace Lau, a convener of the Government Advisory Panel on COVID-19 Vaccines. Uh, uh, perhaps, um, uh, Professor Lau, if we could start with you. Good morning. 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 So, so the vaccination rate, um, um, w- w- the chief executive was remarking on a decline in the number of bookings last week and expressing concern. Uh, h- how do you think we're doing and, and how concerned should we be? Um, I, I, I think we have uh, so far done not so badly, but of course uh, we want to be achieving at least the 70% mark uh, as soon as possible. If we look at you know the uh, percentage of people in different age ranges who have taken the vaccine, we have done not so badly. In fact, uh, between the age 20 to 59, mainly the working class people, we have roughly 
over 70 percent and indeed um, uh, in some of the people um, in some of the groups like the 40 to 49 80 percent of the people have actually been vaccinated what is most concerning us is really the um, elderly ones um, if we look at you know the age range 70 to 79 uh, just barely over one-third 78 percent or so of people have been vaccinated and the most vulnerable ones, the 80 years old one, about 3% of these people have been vaccinated. I think what we really need to do will be to concentrate on these elderly people who are most susceptible to the COVID to get them to vaccinate as soon as possible. Well, good morning, Professor Lau. This, yes. is, this is actually pretty grim, isn't it? Um, we, we, we're way short of 70%. I, I got the numbers as of yesterday. We're about 50% fully vaccinated and another 8% have had one shot. Yes. Um, we're not at the 60 that we were hoping for. Even the 70 is not going to be high enough, is it? Because a, lot, a big chunk of the ones who have the vaccination already um, have had the Sinovac and, and therefore the efficacy is lower. So we probably need something more um, like 80%. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, so, excuse me, excuse me, professors. I'm, I'm going to butt in here because um, um, I looked at some figures this morning, Mike, and they're not quite the same as what you were just quoting. I've, um, um, I, I was looking, oh. I was looking at the government uh, website. It said 64% um, have had their first dose. First and, dose, and first, yes. Yeah, 56% have had two doses, so fully vaccinated. I think it so, says eligible. Mm. It, it does, it's not everybody. We, we, I think we, we need to be clear about right. the figures. So, pro, pro, we're, Professor we're, Lau, could, we're, you, we're could, could, you, yeah, could, could you clarify there for us? Hello? Uh, hi. I was talking about the percentage of people who have had the first dose. Right. So, in fact, therefore, we expect these people to be receiving the full doses of the vaccination yeah. by three to four weeks from now. Yes. yes. Right. But the... The point I was trying to make there is that uh, even 70% is not going to f free us, is it? Back to, the, back to where we want to be. But this, this I completely agree. This is especially because of, you know, the virus has started to mutate, it keeps mutating, and the, mutate, and the mutant viruses actually are, are more uh, transmissible and more infectious. Um, yes, um, I think 70% is the mark that we want to achieve uh, to, to, to start with, but this, is, this just does not mean that we will be happy at 70%. We really should be aiming for you know, much higher vaccination rate. What I was trying to say was actually that for those people who are sort of um, within the age range, working age range, the number of people who have received the first dose has at least um, you know, roughly reached the 70% that we have uh, hoped for initially. Right. What do we do then to get the the hesitant uh, more interested? The, the people who don't travel. So uh, <laughs> saying you, you won't be able to travel is sort of no, and there's no risk factor, is it, for them? I, I think one of the problems that we have in Hong Kong, uh, it, to me personally, is that we have done very well in terms of, you know, controlling the number of cases um, you know, occurring in Hong Kong. And people really have, after, well, how many months now? Um, one year and nine months now, really have started to forget about how serious COVID-19 infection is. Um, um, you know, 
over a year and a half ago when, the, you know, COVID started in Hong Kong. I remember when I was, uh, you know, working in the infectious disease ward. I mean, the, the situation that we had actually was really, really worrisome. And uh, I think people have become a little, um, got too used to it. <laughs> and then the, the number of cases uh, going down without really any local cases have really given people a, I would say, a false sense of, um, um, you know, safety. Uh, the problem with COVID-19 is, of course, it is a global pandemic. Uh, almost as soon, I, I believe, as we open the ports again, uh, we will be seeing case uh, number rises. Right. And uh, so no we really need to be more, mm. you know. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, um, Professor Brutoni, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, the target was to reach 70% uh, full vaccination rate by the end of this month, I believe. Uh, do you think there's any chance of us achieving that? Well, this I don't have numbers to say whether it is achievable or not. Uh, clearly, if, uh, if there has been even a decline in the booking, that uh, looks like it's not going to be achievable. But I think that uh, the target doesn't seem to be a target anymore. We heard what also... <laughs> My colleague, Professor Lau, just said, good morning. Yes, how are you? Hi, Robert. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to be enough, first of all, because it depends whether we are talking about eligible individuals or not. And secondly, because there is this category, this group of individuals, the uh, over 80, uh, who are not going to be, not even near close, probably 30%. So I think that uh, we are always having a, a situation which the goalposts are shifting continuously. First of all, we need a vaccine, then this, then this and that, but we are never close to any uh, target that will change the policy. I think that uh, Hong Kong has not had uh, cases locally transmitted or they could not be traced for several weeks or months. In fact, you know, China has more cases than, uh, than in Hong Kong across the border. So I don't know exactly what Hong Kong needs to do to reopen uh, the borders with, uh, with the mainland, which is obviously very important. To me, it seems that uh, it's doing pretty well. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but there is never a, a clear, um, you know, shared objective of what needs to be done in order to the policy uh, for, for the policy to change. So I think that this is the main issue at the moment. Uh, general practitioners and families should both try to convince elderly individuals to take the vaccine. We have had more than 50 billion doses administered, so this is not an experimental vaccine anymore. We know that it works. We know that it is safe. If people don't want to get vaccinated, well, there, are, there is an alternative. Either it's a compulsory vaccination or people who don't get vaccinated will bear the consequences of not being vaccinated. There is no alternative. So you be a favour, good morning, of, of, of Joe Biden's approach here, which is mandatory testing for the unvaccinated. That could be an approach. I mean, I, I'm not sure whether that should be uh, the only one. I think that uh, there are mandatory vaccinations for children. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. Several, several mandatory vaccinations. Children, they don't have, we don't ask permission to our, um, to other sons, to our daughters, to vaccinate them within the first two years of age. You know, to number of diseases. So, mandatory vaccination is not something exceptional. In fact, it is the norm for, for children. So, yeah, and then why not for adults? 
and then why not for elderly individuals? Why not? I mean, at least the discussion can be, I'm not saying it has to be that way, but I think that preventing even from discussing mandatory vaccination uh, seems to me a little bit disingenuous at the moment because there is mandatory vaccination for children. Right, against polio and things like that. Well, uh, when you know, we're, in we're Europe fine. there are nine or ten mandatory vaccines you know, for children. Otherwise you cannot go to public schools. That's the way it is. As uh, Professor Lau was uh, saying, as we, we've acknowledged... The, the, the main sort of problem group seems to be the elderly. Um, only about a third of people aged 70 or over have been inoculated, uh, over 80, many fewer than that. Um, what do you think would be a sensible approach to persuading elderly people to, to be vaccinated? Uh, are we talking about uh, incentives or, or, or what? Um, Roberto? Oh, oh, sorry. I mean, for me, you know, incentives, what? As I said, you know, families... General practitioners, I think that the education, there are, there are campaigns every day on TV. You can see them on the MTR everywhere, I'm sure. You know, elderly that have been vaccinated against influenza in the past. I think that, you know, if we admit and I accept that they are responsible for their actions and they don't need to and they don't want to be vaccinated, then they don't want to be vaccinated. But I think that to... to to say that Hong Kong cannot do this and that because the elderly are not vaccinated, I think it's a little bit, as I said, disingenuous. I mean, uh, sorry. Wait, I could ask Professor Lau this. Um, there's some signs that many GPs and medical workers are themselves not vaccinated yes. or are more than ready to give some sort of exemption certificate to their patients. Um, this seems very puzzling. Yes, I think uh, what Roberto um, highlighted a couple of times earlier on is very important, and that is, first of all, the mandatory vaccination for the children, and secondly, you know, the flu vaccine has been around for a long time, and for a long time, GPs and everyone else has, uh, have been uh, encouraging the elderly people to yes. get the flu vaccines, and we really do not quite understand exactly why you know now we have so much hesitancy even amongst ourselves i think this is um, in, important um, we, we really need to realize that in fact the covid vaccine lives uh, are not experimental anymore as highlighted again by roberto five billion and, doses I mean, yeah this is um, we, we, we we need to continue to educate our our colleagues we need to continue to convince our colleagues that you know that, the vaccination is important. Uh, but there are signs that, in fact, the, you know, we are doing that. The, the various medical associations, organizations are organizing a lot of webinars to help people understand the safety and, most importantly, you know, certain contraindications for COVID vaccines. I, what I would say is, to be honest, <laughs> I can't really think of many reasons why uh, someone should not receive a COVID vaccine like that. Right. People have talked of a very small number of medical conditions that perhaps it is not wise to have be vaccinated. What 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 are the real compelling uh, medical reasons why you shouldn't be vaccinated? Um, you, you mean the real ones? The real yes, ones. the real ones. I mean, if, if if someone is allergic to a vaccine, uh, have developed very serious 
systemic reactions to the first vaccine, then of course the, that person should not really be receiving the, the, the second uh, dose at all. Right. If someone has had a very uh, a history of very serious systemic allergic reaction to multiple drugs or multiple food, which is not common, uh, should actually be re- assessed by someone who knows about allergy before uh, he or she receives the vaccine. Uh, there aren't and many other uh, contraindications for the vaccinations. The coronavac probably are a bit, uh, people are a bit more cautious in that, you know, uh, people who have had history of what we call facial nerve palsy or Bell's palsy, right. people who have had history of some form of autoimmune new nerve problem, neuropathy, uh, should actually not consider uh, the coronavac vaccine. But other than that, actually, almost everyone so, uh, can yes, Even people vaccine. with uh, autoimmune disease, um, you know, <laughs> Professor, yes. you, you are an expert on that. You know that, you know, it was not yes. tested at the beginning, but after it became clear that even people with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, with exactly. multiple sclerosis, then can take the vaccine very safely. Exactly. All people who have chronic medical disorders should and really perhaps Hong Kong should be encouraged also to try to procure vaccine from other companies that have used the so-called subunit vaccine, like for the influenza, which is a protein vaccine, which is a very standard technique that has been used in elderly here in Hong Kong for many, many years. Right. But things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, these things are not themselves vaccine uh, killers. They shouldn't... Uh, to be honest, I mean, none of the vaccines that we are using now uh, will raise the blood pressure directly, <laughs> will alter the lipid control, will, will make our diabetes worse. No, none of them will. Um, what people have been you know, reporting has been you know, people who have received a vaccine and then developed a complication from one of these hypers. Um, uh, what we would advise people to do is if the condition is currently unstable, for example, requiring adjustment of, of some sort of medications, then perhaps hold back, not, 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 not to receive the vaccine, but hold back until the condition is stable. Not exactly because the vaccine will further make the condition worse, but because we want the condition to become stable first, and that's it. And we don't want any sort of um, happenings that, uh, uh, after the vaccination to be... Um, to be, to be uh, should I say, framed on the vaccine. OK, a couple of emails here from listeners. Yes. Uh, Phil writes, uh, I'm a proponent of vaccine and I'm disappointed that many of the big institutions and recreational clubs are reluctant to support the government in its public health policy. For instance, uh, in the recreational clubs, the staff were made to take the jab. Sadly, the members have not been so... Uh, it is time for the recreational clubs to show some leadership and insist on members to be jabbed and support the government to get as many as we can to get uh, vaccinated. And uh, uh, thumbs up there from Mike. Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and, and, also, also, and another one. Um, uh, this one's actually um, addressed to you, uh, uh, Professor Bruzzoni. It says, uh, Dr. Roberto cited that the virus was mutating. When a living organism mutates, it undergoes a scrambling of its gene code. Can Roberto please give a repeatable example of mutations causing a coherent addition to an organism's genetics? And if he cannot, then it, can he... Uh, 
concede that the recorded mutations show that the virus is beginning to break down. That's from Paul. I don't quite understand. Um, <laughs> Neither do I. I didn't say anything like this this right. morning. But. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, is there anything, uh, I mean, is, is there any sort of um, sense in that email that you can respond to? Or, or? Well, well, that would be, a, I'll try to be brief. Uh, the virus is mutating to become more comfortable in the new environment, which is in this case humans, mm. because before it was in animals. So these mutations are quite normal. The rate of mutation is nowhere even close is certainly not different from what we have in a normal seasonal influenza. This is why every year the vaccine formulation for influenza changes because there is a committee that meets and decides what will be the strain, the, the, the virus strain that will be used for the following year, which is not exactly the one that was circulating the previous year. So this is absolutely normal. If the virus mutates too much, it will break down. There are certain mutations that are incompatible with the virus life cycle, of course, and we don't know about that because the virus eliminates, you know, it's natural selection at work. So it is always able to keep the ones that allow, uh, you know, to sustain infection and to remain in a way alive. So are we going to have to do the same with uh, coronavirus vaccines? That, I would, uh, we do I would flu vaccines? Uh, definitely recommend that we consider that very, very seriously to have the same type of committee and think about seasonal vaccinations. I said that already, I think, uh, on your program before. That doesn't mean that the number of people who need to be vaccinated seasonally will be as higher as we had this year, but definitely something to be considered very seriously. And if not clearly indicated by a panel of experts why this is not an option. You know, I want to come back to this point about um, a lot of the staff have been vaccinated in the recreation clubs. I think they've done a good job there, by and large. Um, and so a lot of the restaurants have taken a tough line with their staff as well. But if the clientele are not vaccinated, then isn't that presenting a danger to the staff? It's not fair to the staff. Professor Lau? Um, I, yes, I tend to agree, but I was going to say that, in fact, those uh, who are serving others actually should get vaccinated. But now, of course, when, with me being a doctor, I would say that definitely the healthcare workers, the people who work in residential homes, etc., really should get vaccinated. And, and, and besides, you know, the hospitals and clinics, yes, uh, those um, um, uh, uh, restauranteurs, uh, they, they, they really should be vaccinated. What I would like to add to what Roberto has just mentioned, and that is mutation of the virus. Viruses actually will mutate when they are in a uh, environment that they want to, you know, continue to live in. Uh, and that is for COVID vaccine, uh, COVID-19, and that is us. And, and uh, the virus will only mutate when they get when we get infected. So the important thing, uh, the important message that I would like to say is everyone, please get vaccinated. If we get vaccinated and limit the entry of the virus into our body, the mutation rate will go down and, yes. uh, you know, we will be less worried about, you know, the next mutation. We have the Delta, we have the Mu, we don't right. know what we have next. Yes. We've been seven or eight months right. now relying on persuasion and persuasion seems to have run out of puff. It, it's, it's not enough. What, 
what can we do for as a carrot and what should we what should we be prepared to consider as a stick um, uh, as, as I said earlier on actually that um, um, a lot of the um, working class people um, have had the first dose of the vaccine so in fact um, uh, we, we need to keep pushing of course uh, the question is about mandatory versus um, um, in a voluntary acceptance of the vaccine and um, um, there are there is space for us to discuss uh, mandatory vaccination as per what we have just discussed you know the early vaccines for the babies and for the children and um, it's certainly one something that we we could consider i would think mm. You've written before, Mike, about financial incentives, haven't you? Well, I have, because it, it struck me as extremely... Uh, Hong Kong people like money, but pa paying, paying them to go shopping is, is like bribing dogs to smell each other's bottoms. I, I just don't understand why that was necessary. Um, if you'd said, OK, you get a $5,000 consumption voucher if you're vaccinated, otherwise forget it, then that would have been something. But we've we've given two thousand of that away. Can we can we hold up the other three thousand, Professor Lau? <laughs> Not in my remit to, you know, <laughs> to decide on this, I'm afraid. But you do whisper in the chief executive's ear on this subject, don't you? <laughs> well, um, if I could, yes. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, um, uh, thank you very much uh, to uh, Professor Wallace Lau there from uh, the, who's the convener of the Government Advisory Panel on COVID-19 vaccines. I think Professor Bruzzoni is going to stay with us um, after nine o'clock. We've got to take a short break for the news. Um, before we go to the news, uh, a quick look at the weather, um, sunny periods and a few showers very hot with isolated uh, thunderstorms during the day. Top temperature around 33 degrees in the urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories, light to moderate southwesterly winds. The outlook, it'll be uh, hot with sunny intervals and a few showers tomorrow. More showers midweek this week. The very hot weather warnings just popped up. It's 31 degrees, humidity 77%. On RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat uh, with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. Um, this morning we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccination rate. And a little later, we're having a look at uh, domestic tourism. Um, we have uh, with us uh, in the st uh, um, on, um, on the line, uh, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, who's a visiting professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Um, also on the line, I believe... Uh, oh, OK, no, we're expecting another guest uh, fairly soon. But um, a couple of emails here to read out, a few more emails from listeners. Um, uh, this one from John says, uh, uh, please elaborate about, about the Bell's palsy point. Uh, my friend has had Bell's palsy in the, la in the past and had uh, temperature and rash after first injection. Bell's palsy, that's a condition where you get, I think, uh, facial paralysis, and it is uh, sort of listed as one of the possible side effects of COVID-19. Um, uh, Professor Bruzzoni of, of COVID-19 vaccine, could, w w could you elaborate a little bit more about that? Well, it's difficult because nobody knows exactly uh, why some individuals get this Bell's palsy, even, you know, without any uh, particular, you know, uh, medical action. 
So it's not just because you have a, an injection. Uh, sometimes it's really without uh, most cases, you know, without any underlying cause. And uh, in most cases, of course, it resolves spontaneously uh, or with, uh, with time. Uh, and in some cases, it, it still gives, uh, of course, a slight handicap on the, uh, because you have this uh, paralysis contraction of, your, of, your, of one side of your, of your face. Um, it it's, has to do with the, the, with the facial nerve, uh, and I think that, uh, as also my colleague, Professor Lau, was saying, clearly there are situations which if you had, for example, a, a very strong reaction during the, after the first uh, uh, dose, etc., you should consult uh, a doctor and really you know, look carefully whether you need a second dose. Uh, I think that I cannot make a comment on this particular case because uh, one should not make comment just... Uh, um, having a limited amount of information, uh, but I think that uh, this individual needs really to uh, consult the specialist before uh, deciding whether to go for a second dose. I believe that now there may be probably studies also uh, reporting on this uh, that can uh, inform uh, uh, the decision that needs to be taken. Mm. Right. So it's, a very, it's a very rare condition. It is a very rare condition. And not indeed. only caused by... No, uh, vaccination. Not by vaccination. No, it's not. It's not only caused by vaccination. In fact, uh, the, uh, the 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 cases I remember, you know, that I encountered before, uh, were not really caused by vaccination. So sometimes they're really is what is called idiopathic. So we don't know why this happens. Well, we're talking about the vaccination rate this morning. Um, the aim is to get as many people vaccinated, fully vaccinated yeah. uh, as possible with two doses. Um, do you think it's likely that we may be having to have a, a third dose, a booster shot at some stage? Well, uh, you know, that, that goes back to my idea of seasonal vaccination that at least needs to be uh, taken into consideration. <coughs> There's some signs. Clearly, clearly we, we will have a decline, perhaps, in what is called the antibody starter, so the right. level of this antibodies. But, you know, we fight viruses and we, uh, we defend ourselves from micro pathogenic microbes, not just with antibodies, but also with the cells, specialized cells, which are called the T lymphocytes. And uh, it is clear that uh, these usually can provide also robust immunity uh, and they may last longer. And the, the, the important point is that even if there is a decline in these antibody titers, our ability to react to the memory, the memory of the pathogen is there. So we should be able to mount a defense more quickly and therefore have a much less severe Right. So in your view, it's still a bit early to consider a booster shot? I think as a, as a, as a health policy, probably it is a little bit early to, uh, to really implement. Certainly doesn't look like the case here. Uh, but uh, I would really recommend that we consider seriously whether or not we should embark on sort of uh, seasonal vaccination campaigns because the virus is going to circulate. Look at the UK. So the UK, at least in Europe, is the, the best example of, of, of a country where there are no limits. Now, now everything is back to 2019. And uh, although there are about 30,000 cases per day since July 19, when there was this uh, uh, change in, uh, in, in policies from the, from the government, uh, the... Uh, the case fatality rate, which is, of course still exists, 
is less than 0.5%. Now, that is still means that it's a serious disease, but obviously is something that we can try to cope with by continuing the vaccination and by making sure that we remain well protected from the circulating virus. Okay. Uh, we're also joined uh, now by uh, Dion Chen, who's uh, chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council. Good morning to you. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, so, um, talking about the vaccination rate, uh, uh, schools have been encouraging students and teachers uh, to take the jab in order to reach the, the 70% threshold needed to resume full-day classes. Um, mm. uh, how are you doing? Uh, well, uh, I think for the 70% threshold, like most of the schools, the teacher side, uh, they already reached its threshold. I think the concern now is about the students. So, uh, sorry, ex explain a bit more. The teachers are vaccinated. Uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Teachers so, basically more than 70%. Right, right. Yeah. And, and how about among the students? Among the students, like probably you can also hear from the news that like uh, some schools, they have already started some of the year groups through their res uh, resumption for the lessons. So definitely some schools, some levels have already reached 70%. But uh, generally speaking, so most of the schools, they still cannot reach the 70% as a whole, or even by certain levels. But the vaccination is possible from age 12 at the moment, isn't it? Yes. Um, some governments are talking about bringing it down to much lower levels. Yes. I guess, like, in the US, they are already having some plans to move down to 5 or above, so, or even below 12, I mean. Yes. So, uh, that... Well, of, of, of course, then they have their own plan. But like uh, in Hong Kong at this moment, just only uh, 12 or about. So it means that the arrangement just only could be benefit to the secondary school, but not the primary schools. So have the uh, secondary schools been using um, you know, any particular means of persuasion to uh, to you know to talk you know families impress upon families that it's important for the uh, the students to be vaccinated? What, yeah, I mean, what have the schools been doing to encourage uh, students to be vaccinated? Right, I think it all depends on, you know, different schools arrangements. But like most of the schools, they really heavily encourage the uh, you know, parents to consider about taking their kids for the uh, vaccination. And uh, they keep like updating parents about like the vaccination rate. So try to give the sort of the idea that like we are very close to 70%. So uh, please uh, consider to take, uh, to take the uh, vaccination. But the issue now is that we can see quite a few, quite a lot of schools, I can say that, like Form 1 students, quite a few of them have not even reached 12 years old yet, at least at this stage or in, or in early September. So it uh, more or less affects the, uh, you know, the total numbers of the vaccination. Mm. What's the impact of this on, on class activities and uh, extracurricular activities? Uh, for the time being, like the, the EDB or the government said, like only those who have uh, two doses and also after 14 days of vaccination, they can uh, resume the afternoon activity. So, which means that like students can only stay in school for half a day if they haven't got uh, vaccinated yet. And uh, of course, like if the whole school can be back to school full day normal, then uh, even those students without vaccination, they still can stay behind after school for activity. So given the popularity among parents of education for their children, that is, is an incentive, isn't it? 
uh, to young people certainly because like, they really miss it, uh, you know, their activities for almost two years. And especially like some of the kids, they are very strong in sports. And in the past two years, they did not really have very uh, formal or official uh, sport competition. So uh, having these kind of the arrangements certainly can make some students to change their mindset or the parents to change their mindset to continue with the sports training. Yeah, because many students must be looking forward to resuming uh, full-day schooling and their parents. So, I mean, is there any sort of peer pressure on those students who haven't yet been vaccinated? I personally do not see that there is any uh, peer pressure, but certainly there is some discussion among the young people talking about like, whether you will go to do the vaccination. And, uh, of course, uh, there may be some situation like if there's a team sports, and, uh, you know, they want the whole team to compete in the competition or tournament. So if one or two, like, you know, the key players without vaccination, right. it doesn't right. affect the whole team's performance. That's right. The rugby team not going to be much without the, the scrum half. <laughs> so if the scrum, the scrum is vaccinated but the backs are not, you haven't yeah. got a team. <laughs> what, um, what about the idea, and we've referred to it a couple of times, of mandatory vaccination for, for children at the age of 12? Uh, the 8 to 12 students like uh, any motivation for them to take vaccination? Well, it, we, we've established that we vaccinate our children mm. without discussion against a whole range of things when they're very small. Um, mm. The COVID is new, but we yeah. now, the, the, the vaccines are not new and 5 billion doses have been administered. It's not an experiment anymore. Would mm. the government be justified in saying, well, when you reach the age of 12, you must get vaccinated? Well, uh, of course, once again, uh, personal view, I do not think that like uh, forcing students to have the vaccination is uh, is right at this point or appropriate at this point, I would say that way. And uh, once again, because that is uh, something go into your body and uh, I, think, uh, I think parents and students, they definitely have certain concerns. But what can we do a bit more is that try, try to use the statistics to persuade the parents or the, uh, the young people saying that like, uh, well, you know, some of them, they really have concern about the side effect or some of the very strong side effect. But uh, in fact, like statistically, uh, doesn't really, uh, I mean, share the same thoughts. So I think uh, what we can do or what government can do is try to use the statistics to persuade the parents. Are, they, uh, are schools getting visits from teams that can do vaccination on the spot? I mean, if the school can arrange it and more than 300 people or students or even staff can do the vaccination uh, at the same time. So uh, the CHP, I think the, uh, the government, they are willing to send the teams over to the school to give vaccination. Well, in many schools, they're doing it for influenza, even for younger children. As we say, of course, the influenza vaccine has been uh, you know, available for many, many decades, but they're doing that. As far as, you know, the older than 12 years old, uh, the adolescents, Professor Lao Yulung of the Department of Pediatrics here at Hong Kong U has been chairing, you know, a study on, on understanding the immune response, and I think that the results will be uh, ready pretty soon. And, and certainly from the point of view of safety, uh, everything uh, uh, seems to work very, very, very well. So I don't think that we are there at, at making it mandatory now. Uh, we need to understand that 
adolescents are not really adults, uh, but I think uh, as soon as there is more and more information, uh, all kinds of uh, decisions that are motivated by uh, evidence, but clear evidence, can be at least put on the table and discussed. I think one more point that we may need to um, share with the, uh, the public or maybe even the young people that like, uh, some of them they still have the wrong concept that like with the vaccination, which means that they get 100% uh, got protection from the virus or the, I mean, the COVID. That is not the case, I believe that. So uh, as far as I know, like, after you got a vaccination, then possibly the, uh, the what they call the, the illness, okay, could be, or the symptoms could be reduced, okay, if you got a, if you are, Fascinated. So I think this is something we may need to further promote to the young people. And so let them understand about why we need a vaccination, not because like having a vaccination is 100% one right. away from the COVID. Because yeah. it doesn't stop you getting it. It means it, you yeah. will suffer more mildly. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's important because people are quoting, oh, so-and-so was already vaccinated but still got the virus as a reason not to bother getting vaccinated. Mindset that we may need to change them. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong's obviously done very well in controlling the virus, and also um, it tends to affect young people, younger people, much less. I mean, do you think there are a lot of students who don't feel any pressing need to be vaccinated because of that? Well, I think once, once again, like uh, currently, and uh, the, the students they go to vaccination or not, like the parents, I think they make the decision mainly. Because ultimately, like those who be uh, under 18 years old, they need to get a parent approval before having the vaccination. So uh, some parents, they may not see the need there. So that's why, like, uh, they may not arrange the kids to go to do, do the vaccination. But also, once again, like, uh, the understanding about the vaccination is also one of the issues. Yeah. Professor Bruzzoni, do you think we are, in a way a victim of our own success in that uh, controlling the virus has lessened the urgency to be vaccinated? Well, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that uh, you know, there are many ways of uh, reacting to the current situation. Overall, uh, Hong Kong has been uh, isolated from the rest of the world because of the quarantine measures for now over a year. So I think that the dynamics uh, are different um, and perhaps there is... Uh, not enough discussion of, uh, of pros and cons. And as I said, one of, the, one of the worrying issues from my point of view is that things have been changing. And even when Hong Kong reached certain milestones in order, for example, to reopen the border with mainland, etc., this did not happen. You know, at the beginning, we're saying 28 days, then it went 42, then, then still this didn't happen. So there is no clear correlation between goals and, uh, and actions. So overall, that creates uh, you know, a, a situation which people care less, probably. Okay. 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 Well, thank you both uh, very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, that's uh, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, who's uh, a visiting professor at the uh, Hong Kong University School of Public Health. And we also heard from Dion Chen, who's uh, chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council. And before nine o'clock, we heard from Professor Wallace Lau, who's convener of the Government Advisory Panel on COVID-19 vaccines. And for the uh, remaining part... Oh, sorry, 
quick, just one email to read out uh, on the vaccine issue. Um, can someone explain to me why a government that is so willing to ignore public opinion in the political arena is so timid when it comes to persuading people to get vaccinated, despite a likely majority of the population supporting this course? That's from Anthony. Uh, OK, maybe that's a topic for another day. Um, so, uh, yes, for the remaining part of the programme, um, we're going to talk about... Um, uh, OK, the Hong Kong Neighbourhoods Scheme, which is a, a local tourism programme to promote local tourism. And uh, we're joined uh, on the line um, by Professor Brian King, who's Associate Dean at the School of Hotel and Tourism Management at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Good morning to you. Yes, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Mark. Good, thanks, thanks for joining us. Yeah, so, so this scheme has been extended to West Kowloon, and I think more than 50 attractions are involved in Yamate, uh, Jordan. Um, um, is, is this a good way to go? Is this going to be a success, do you think? Well, I think it's following an important trend uh, globally. So cities across the world, all the top tourism destinations, New York, Paris, Barcelona, Tokyo, they all have these interesting little areas that people like to go. And that's what brings them back to these destinations. You know, it's not just the Eiffel Tower or the Statue of Liberty. So this is a whole trend towards what we call new, new tourism areas uh, or new urban tourism. And so I think Hong Kong's getting on board. It's, it's got a lot of interesting areas. But in the past, Hong Kong's been pretty reliant on a number of, you know, main iconic attractions. So, um, so I think that's the, the trend globally. And um, so I, I think it's good for, for Hong Kong to get on board with that. But for the time being, of course, we're not getting many tourists, are we? Oh, well, virtually zero, of course. That's right. right. But look, I think the fact that the visitors will be locals is a good thing because rather than you test these things out with tourists first up, uh, right. let's see how the locals like it. And they'll, they'll be the toughest customers in a way. Uh, so, so I think with the reset of Hong Kong and, and going local, um, this makes it an interesting time. So, so I think it's really a positive that we start with the locals rather than uh, bringing the international straight away. Right. And specifically on West Kowloon, of course, we're um, offering people free access, aren't we, to this new uh, museum, lo locals, for, for one year. Yeah, so M Plus, I think, opens in November. And, I mean, that's a big, big attraction. Uh, so in addition to locals, people will come through West Kowloon uh, Railway Station. The other bits of the neighbourhood, Yamate and, and Jordan, where I live, the attractions are much more low-key. You know, it, it's very right. much that new neighbourhood's idea. So I think what Hong Kong Tourism Board are trying to do is con to make this cultural district less elite, less exclusive, and say, look, let's open it up to the whole precinct, the, the, the whole uh, adjoining areas, and make that welcoming to everyone. So that's a good principle. Let's see how it works. Yes, because some of these attractions are, are, are very local, aren't they? I mean, there's a, there's a, a sauce shop, another, another shop that makes uh, sandalwood fans, and then there's the Tinhao Temple in Yamate. Um, is this an opportunity for, you know, for local people to re rediscover their own neighbourhood, their own city? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I was teaching a subject, cultural tourism, to master's students over the summer, and we did, uh, we did all these tours, virtual mainly, because many of the students were joining online. But what these young people 
uh, these are early 20s, love doing, is making all the connections between the interesting little places. So you might say that one attraction is not fascinating to everyone, but once you start discovering for yourself, connecting up the soft factory and, the, and some of the other, you know, the... Um, the Cinematheque or, or other attractions around there, people love making these um, connections for themselves. So it, it's a kind of creative tourism. You treat everyone has got creative potential. So you're not just following a standard tour group. You're coming up with interesting little angles. Uh, and I think that's um, important for the future of tourism in, in our urban areas. And if you've got 10 or 12 sort of fairly close to each other, there's bound to be something of interest to everyone in the group, even if they're not all interested in everything. Yes, I think there's three layers to it. The, the Hong Kong Tourism Board is presenting, you know, potential tours, follow this, or they're saying design your own. So depending, some of us are more independent travellers than others. So, you know, you'll still have tour groups, but that will be a declining proportion of the total. Then you'll have some people following the following the defined path and then others just discovering for themselves and, and using the technology, their mobile devices to see what's around the corner. So it's a kind of voyage of discovery into little neighbourhoods. And what about uh, walkability? Is it easy to get around this area? Well, I think for non-Chinese, people who don't read Chinese, that can be a little bit challenging. So uh, I think there'll be different levels for the international visitors uh, what do they appreciate about it and what do people who read Chinese, so some of the little back alleys and so on will be a more immersive experience possibly for for, for the Chinese uh, speakers. So I think it depends a little bit on, on the visitors. Um, look, I think there's more to be done with the signage and, and with the guiding, uh, but I think starting with the locals is good. They will raise issues if... Um, if they feel that it's not satisfactory, and hopefully there'll be responses. The only issue I think we've got at the moment is with the local councils a bit denuded from councillors, uh, where they go to raise their concerns. So that's the only slight concern. These, these neighbourhood developments read to, need to be done closely with the district councils, and, and I hope is that it rolls out to other parts of Hong Kong. That's going to be a, a key element. How are our traditional uh, attractions doing in... Uh this sort of zero foreigners uh, environment. I mean, Ocean Park, Disneyland, Nongping 360, how are they doing at the moment? Well, the demand is down, so the, the tourism sector, um, I mean, I think we heard uh, from the finance minister that, uh, that retail and, um, and restaurants are doing, doing okay, well, right? and even hotels are doing not too badly, but the tourism sector is really suffering. So yes, anything like Disneyland or Ocean Park, these uh, th these attractions are not doing as well. But of course, we had 13 million outbound visits from Hong Kong, so all the about seven and a half million Hong Kongers are are uh, pretty avid consumers as well. So um, so the business is still uh, going ahead, but much lower than expectations. Because well, outbound. Is, is great because there's still a number of countries you can fly into without uh, without quarantine, mm. but you've got the three weeks or two weeks, mostly three weeks, when you come back. Yeah, so most people are staying at home. You know, they, they, uh, whilst theoretically it's possible in, in practice, most people are, uh, are postponing until the, the, the quarantine requirements is lowered. 
So that's mm. right. Mm. But at least they're available to to spend their money on the local uh, attractions. So that's what's keeping them afloat. We mentioned that the M Plus Museum uh, that's due to open on November the twelfth, and then the the Hong Kong Palace Museum is going to open up in the same area, the West uh, Kowloon Cultural District, in the middle of next year. Um, would you expect when that happens that really that district is going to be a big uh, driver of tourism? Yes, I think so, uh, especially being close to the train station. So I, I think with the Greater Bay Area, with the seventy plus million people. I think as uh, as border restrictions come down, we'll see uh, movements, and, and I think we'll see Hong Kongers going to Guangzhou and other cities as well to to check them out. Uh, so obviously, both M Plus and the the Palace Museum are attractions. The other thing I'd add, though, about West Kowloon Cultural District is. It's also designed as a recreational precinct. So you see people taking their dogs. You've got the you know, barrier-free along the waterfront. So uh, people feel more able to just hang out and, and relax. So I think it's also intended as a hangout place for locals as well as uh, somewhere that has built attractions. And I think that combination is going to be pretty important to determine its long-term success. Is it succeeding on that level at the moment? In terms of a, well, a local I, hangout? I, in a way it is, yes. I think that it's doing pretty well in attracting local people because there are very limited options. You know, where do you take <laughs> your, your dogs to, to, for a walk with this grass and so on? So I think it's doing not too badly at the moment and, and the locals are welcoming the fact that they've got it to themselves. Um, but obviously from a commercial point of view, it's, it's not enough and, and the visitors are necessary to create that vibrancy. But I mean, I think one point I'd make is that the, the non-locals will want to go where the locals go. So it, it's a good test to see if the locals like it and then the non-residents will follow that pattern. That's, that's a global trend. OK, sounds good. Well, thanks very much for speaking to us on the programme this morning. Professor Brian King there, Associate Dean at the School of Hotel and Tourism Management at the Polytechnic University. OK, thanks to our listeners, and thank you to you, Mike. It's always fun. Good. <laughs> Quick look at, at the weather. Uh, sunny periods and a few showers. Uh, very hot with isolated thunderstorms during the day. Uh, top temperature around 33 degrees in the city, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Light to moderate southwesterly winds. The outlook, it will be hot with sunny intervals and a few showers tomorrow. More showers midweek this week. Currently it's 31 degrees, humidity 75% and the very hot weather warning is in effect. No matter how fit we are, it is important to get vaccinated to prevent COVID-19. All along, we have received different vaccines to prevent infections. Vaccines will help create antibodies and memory in our immune system. When we come into contact with viruses in future, our immune system will quickly resist them. It is the simplest and most effective method to protect ourselves and others. Let's get vaccinated. And now the new summary with Vicky Wong. Macau election officials have said the COVID pandemic was to blame for a sharp fall in turnout for yesterday's legislative poll. Tong Hyo Fong, chairman of the Electoral Commission, noted that the border closure meant voters outside Macau could not cast ballots. Turnout for the 14 directly elected seats was 42%, down almost 15 percentage points on the 2017 election. 
North Korea says it has successfully tested a new type of long-range cruise missile. State media said the missiles were launched on Saturday and Sunday, with both travelling more than 1,500 kilometres. There's been no independent verification. And a zoo in the United States is taking measures to protect animals from coronavirus. 13 of the 20 gorillas at Zoo Atlanta in Georgia have tested positive. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well, oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you. Welcome to a brand new week here on The Morning Brew. Kick off as usual. Rugby. Robbie McRobbie after 10. After 10.30, New York correspondent Tracy Kwan is going to share a few thoughts about 9-11 remembrances this past weekend and read a poem she's just had published called AM 567. 11.40, Bureau Chief at Large Neil Runciman reports from Ho Chi Minh City. Lockdown is lifting there. But doctor's fees have been halved and the price of fresh produce has doubled. See what else he has to say. Join him on Facebook Live after 12. We'll catch up with the westbound rower, Erdan Erich, who's completed the first part of his marathon solo row from the USA to Hong Kong. Follow him along the way. He's made it to Hawaii from where we'll grab him while he's on dry land after 12. You're dangerous. Cause you're honest You're dangerous You don't know what you want I'm not afraid of 